Good morning, friends. Today's message is titled, Stop That Building. And it's based on Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. And I want to start with this very familiar verse from that text, verse 4. Come, let us build ourselves a city, a tower that reaches to the heavens, so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. It was over a hundred years ago or so, a man named Daniel Burnham laid out the plan for the modern city of Chicago. The beauty of the lakefront with its green space, bike trails, beaches, reflect his vision. He kind of summed up his philosophy in two famous sentences. Make no small plans. They have no power to stir men's blood. Make no small plans. You know what? Daniel Burnham would have loved the Tower of Babel. That was right down his alley. After all, no one ever tried to do anything like this before or since. This was the greatest building program of the ancient world. But the tower they started was stopped by God, and it eventually fell to the ground. Let me repeat that another way. They started the tower, God stopped it, and along the way he confused their language and scattered the people across the earth. To understand this story, there are a few background facts we need to know. First of all, the story of the Tower of Babel occurred just a few generations after Noah's flood. It may have happened 100, 150 years later, and by this time the population of the world had expanded considerably from just eight people to a much larger number. One writer suggests that there were more than 30,000 people living on earth at that time. Second, in those days, everyone spoke the same language. That fact mentioned in verse 1 is crucial to understanding this passage of Scripture. Humanity was united then in a way that has never been repeated since then. Now, if you're a very careful student of Scripture, you may wonder how the entire world could speak one language in Genesis 11, when Genesis 10 says that the whole earth was divided into competing tribes and nations, each with its own language or dialect. Well, the answer is that Moses flip-flopped the narrative in order to highlight the essential problem of the human race. Chronologically, the Tower of Babel, that story comes before the scattering of the nations in Genesis 10. But here Moses reverses the order in order to emphasize the high cost of rebelling against God. We are supposed to come to the end of Genesis 10 and ask, how did the world become so hopelessly divided? Well, Genesis 11 answers that question. Well, third, most people lived in the Middle East in an area called Shinar, which is another name for Babylonia, which is in the region of modern-day Iraq. As the post-flood generations migrated east from Ararat, they settled in the region that we now call the Fertile Crescent, a well-watered plain near the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. And fourth, the tower they built was religious in nature. Uh, This fact might not be evident from a quick reading of the text. I mean, when this passage is often taught in Sunday school, teachers sometimes imply that the people were trying to build a tower all the way to heaven. That's probably not accurate. It seems more likely that they were building a tower that could bring heaven down to earth. I mean, some writers suggest that the tower was tied to the early development of astrology. They suggest that at the top of the tower was an altar surrounded by the signs of the zodiac, making an enormous symbol of man's attempt to control the universe apart from God. Now, this suggestion seems somewhat likely, since we know that astrology originated in ancient Babylon. So now, at first glance, the religious nature of the tower they built may seem to make it quite different from modern skyscrapers, but perhaps there really isn't much difference after all. 
I mean, after all, or after the collapse of the World Trade Center in New York City, the Twin Towers were described as temples of modern commerce and shrines to the ingenuity and prowess of American technology. It should not surprise us that when men build anything great, they invest in it with symbolic religious significance. Buildings, statues, monuments all say something about the values of those who build them and those who support them. The Lincoln Memorial and the Washington Monument say something powerful and positive about the values we hold dear in America. Yeah, it was a tower, but it was more than a tower. It was a massive united effort to bring humanity together wholly apart from God. Is it any wonder the Lord wouldn't let that tower stand? One of my favorite Christian writers, J.I. Packer, calls this passage a mirror of the modern world. It reveals what we might call the power game. Now, the builders of the Tower of Babel had two purposes in mind, and they're both mentioned in verse 4. One, that we may make a name for ourselves, and two, that we may not be scattered over the face of the earth. See, this tower was meant to make a statement. Don't mess with us. We're the greatest city on earth. Don't, no one is like us. No one can touch us. And how modern that sounds. And we kind of live in a world that exalts the superlative. Big, bigger, biggest. Good, better, best. Fast, faster, fastest. Smart, smarter, smartest. Tall, taller, tallest. Rich, richer, richest. We all want to be the est if we can. I mean, why be the er if you can be the est? Well, that's why we compete and why we keep score. And if someone said, show me a good loser and I'll show you a loser. That's kind of American. But it would have been, would not have been out of place in ancient Babylon. Architecture is theology. I mean, show me what you build or show me where you live or where you wish you live and I'll know something about your values. Maybe not everything, but I'll know something important. <clears throat> the Tower of Babel was an ancient power game for people who felt the inner need to be number one. They wanted a name, they wanted security, and they thought the tower would give them both things. There are two implications I'd like to pass along for you to think about. First, the compulsive drive for power and prestige stems from our deep-seated fear of dependence on someone else. We want to be the est in our field, biggest, strongest, smartest, loudest, richest, fastest, because if we are the est, then others will have to depend on us, but we don't have to depend on anyone or anything. And as the poet said in words that could have been carved on the Tower of Babel, I am the master of my fate, the captain of my soul. Now, at this point, we need to ponder carefully the implications of this story. Now, is there anything wrong with building a tower? No. Is there anything wrong with working together to build a tower? No. Is there anything wrong with building the tallest tower? No. Is it wrong to advertise that your tower is the tower, tallest tower on the earth? No. But at this point, we're drifting into a danger zone that is so subtle that we hardly see it until it captures us completely. You see, human pride is a tricky thing. Pride is what made Lucifer rebel against God. Pride is the original sin of the universe. See, ambition is not wrong. Competition is not wrong. Winning isn't wrong. Celebrating victories is not wrong. Being the best is not wrong. But it's never entirely innocent either. Sin always lurks in the neighborhood and usually not too far away. That's why Jesus declared that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to go to heaven. You see, when you've got money or power or prestige or fame or friends in high places, you begin to think perhaps that you don't really need God. 
But when you're broke and your power is gone and your friends won't return your call, guess what? You're on your knees crying out for mercy. Jesus showed us the antidote to this kind of hubris that built his ancient tower when he said in Matthew 5, 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the losers, for they shall win in the end. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek. <laughs> we think, oh, the meek, you must be kidding. Who wants to be meek? Meekness is weakness, we say, and the weak get crushed. Or do they? Scripture says, the meek inherit the earth. That leads me to the second implication, which is that the compulsive drive for power and security leads to the moral degeneration of the soul. See, our um, desperate search for significance leads us to compromise our values time and time again in the name of independence, freedom, and the need to control our own destiny. We all kind of want to be like Frank Sinatra and say, I did it my way, which perfectly expresses the spirit of Babel. So we often cut corners, use drugs, wink at insider trading, break the rules, lie to our parents, lie to our friends, end up lying to ourselves. We use people and then discard them when they don't fit our plans anymore, and what seems to be noble suddenly turns out to be sinister in the end. Now, there is nothing wrong with a tower or with a good reputation, and nothing wrong with working as a team to accomplish a great goal. But when these things are fueled by arrogance, the result is grotesque and outright evil. The tower becomes a symbol of man's independence from God. It is humanness in full flower. There is a kind of uneasy paranoia about being on the top of the heap. It's striking that the people of Babel uh, feared being scattered even though there was no reason to fear anything. I mean, they were the only people on earth. Still, they feared what might happen to them. I mean, if you're a basketball superstar, maybe you heard this, they always feel like they need to come back one more time, even though they're only a shell of what they used to be. You see, it's hard to be number one. There's a lot of pressure. Win the championship, and after the cheering dies away and the lights are turned off, your prize is likely to be two ulcers, high blood pressure, a heart attack around the corner. That's life in the big city. Get used to it or get out. See, life is hard without God. You end up doing desperate things like building towers that reach into the heavens. Arrogance makes men think they are invincible, but no one is invincible. Several weeks ago in my reading through the Bible chronologically, I came across these words in, in Isaiah chapter 40. They're kind of haunting words. They're in verses 6 and 7. It says, All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall. But the breath of the Lord blow when the because the breath of the Lord blows on them, surely the people are grass. And yes, friends, that's all we really are grass that fades and leaves that fall, here today, gone tomorrow. Now we don't like to hear that we are weak and mortal, but we are. All of us were born to die, some of us just get there sooner, that's all, but we all get there eventually, unless the Lord chooses to come back before that time. We often think no one can stop me now. No one can touch me. But as they say in Texas, ain't no horse that can't be rode. Ain't no cowboy that can't be throwed. Now that's bad grammar, but that's good theology. As Teddy Roosevelt remarked, there's a bear trap waiting for every bear. We desperately need to take these words to heart because we live in a world that encourages us to think we can do it all. Believe it and achieve it. Dream it and do it. 
I mean, there's no limits on human potential. But remember this, friends. The next time you feel the need to brag about what you've done, pay attention to that faint cracking sound. It's the thin ice beneath your feet that is about to give away. And that's why God stopped the building program. If he let them continue with the tower, they'd think they could do anything. So God confounded their language. The pipe fitters couldn't understand the electricians, who couldn't understand the truck drivers, who didn't have a clue what the bricklayers were talking about, and that drove the carpenters nuts. And suddenly everybody started talking gibberish. No one understood a thing the others were saying, and soon the massive building program ground to a halt. And then, as Scripture says, the Lord scattered them across the face of the earth. And do you know what they called the name of that city, the one with the unfinished tower, the one that eventually fell to the ground? They called it Babel, which means confusion. They called it Confusion City. Everyone was babbling at the same time, and it drove everyone nuts, so they moved away to get some peace and quiet, and that's how they got so many different languages. See, here's the ultimate irony. They built a tower so they wouldn't be scattered, but they ended up scattered anyway. Thus does God judge all human efforts that leave him out. He brings down the high and mighty with a great big thud. I mean, you could write over this story a verse from Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Now, I don't have time to do this in this message, but you need to kind of contrast this. Think about Pentecost, where many languages uh, were all gathered in one place. And then they were all scattered. So Pentecost really is kind of the reverse of the Tower of Babel. Now, as we come to the end of the story, there are three questions that seem to jump out from the text to confront us personally. First, to what extent do I, we, you embody the attitude of Babel? Now, remember, the problem with the tower was not the tower itself, but the attitude that built it in the first place. I mean, anything good can become the Tower of Babel when we are motivated by pride or arrogance or paranoia or a need to establish our own independence from God and other people. There's a mighty thin line between healthy ambition and sinful pride, and any of us can cross it without even knowing it. It's the compulsive need to be in control of every aspect of life, including those around us. It's the spirit of Babel that causes us to say, He's God in heaven, but I'm the God of my own little world. And second, in what areas have I or we experienced the judgment of Babel? Well, in Genesis 11, God judged the people by throwing them into confusion and ruining their massive building program. And I think God does the same thing to us today. We suffer confusion and fear and incredible loneliness in our drive to be the est at whatever we do. Like I heard a fortune cookie one time that said, Confucius say, top of ladder, nice place, but very lonesome. And that's true to some extent. I mean, some of us have suffered incredibly because we're, we're still trying to live according to our own rules. So we kind of push God to the edge of life and then do our own thing. But you can't push God to the side and succeed very long. Your tower will come crashing down sooner or later. And when it does, the shaky foundation of your life will be destroyed with it. Third, have I or we or you embraced the alternative to Babel? Now, there really is one, only one alternative. You find it in Proverbs 18.10. It says, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. I mean, think about this. What shall it profit a man? What shall it profit a woman? What shall it profit a company? What shall it profit a team? What shall it profit a family or a leader or a city or a nation? What shall it profit your church? If you build a mighty tower with your life and you end up losing your own soul in the process. 
So you can have Babel with its power games and moral degeneration, its paranoia, loneliness, despair, and deceptive pleasure. Or you can have Jesus, the Messiah. Those are the choices of life. Now, at this point, the gospel message becomes incredibly relevant to our generation because we, too, are massive tower builders. We're ladder climbers, control freaks, estate builders, compulsive overcommitters. We, we kind of look for love and pleasure and power and purpose and meaning, often in the wrong places. We build towers that crumble. We wonder what wrong. We're too busy building our kingdoms to seek first the kingdom of God. And it's no wonder we're frazzled, tired, nervous, uptight, jumpy, irritable, easily distracted, and easily seduced by you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. But when asked what's wrong with this world, G.K. Chesterton, Chesterton offered a simple answer. I am. And you know, he was right. The spirit of Babel is not just out there. It's inside all of us, all of the time. The tricky part is this. You can't tell by looking at the tower why it was built. Only the Lord knows the thoughts of the heart. So while we may appear to have everything in order because we're happy and busy and successful, God knows that our towers need to come crumbling to the ground. The people said, come, let's build. And Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty-eight, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. So friends, if you're tired of building castles in the sand only to see them washed away by the tides of life, come to Jesus. If you're weary of trying and failing to be the master of your own circumstances, come to Jesus. If you're burdened with the pressure of trying to be all things to all people all the time, and if you fail to meet your own expectations, much less anyone else's, come to Jesus. If you are worn out from the fruitless search for power and prestige, come to Jesus. Now here's a word for frustrated tower builders everywhere. If you are tired of your life and you want something better, Come to Jesus. All that hungry hearts seek is found in him. By his death on the cross, our sins are forgiven, friends. By his resurrection, we gain a new life. The question is, do you know him? Has your heart been changed by his mighty power? If you're tired of building towers that fall to the ground, come to Jesus. He's the firm foundation. He's the cornerstone that can never be shaken. Build your life on Jesus, and you will never be disappointed. Until next time, see the vision, live the mission, feel the passion.